Hello, my name is Kyothi Anakalothai, and welcome to, well, the story so far for the adventures of the Salamander Coast, or the adventures of the Runaways, whichever way you want to look at it is alright with me. I've been writing down the story and the adventures that they've been on so far, even since before I knew them, and long after I've left the group. I like to keep an eye on them every once in a while to make sure they're okay, and to make sure that their story gets told. So, if you'd like to know more about the runaway story, continue listening, and you'll know everything you need to know. Without further ado, I think that it would be best if we get right into it. So, from session 16 to 26, after their success in the tournament, the party was welcomed to a banquet hosted by the Fisher Estate. Here they met, well, they met me, Kyothi Anna, Kyothi Kalukatho, a traveling Goliath woman who was an avid historian, looking to explore the world to understand her people better. She proved to be quite skilled in healing and quite knowledgeable about Ilika, and since the party was still in the absence of Poe, they decided that they could use a new companion on the road ahead. So the party said some final goodbyes, made some purchases, and got ready to head off onto the long road to Belka, the capital city of Belaclara. They hoped that here, at one of the greatest libraries in the world, the party could start researching things that may help them in the future, namely Bianca's demon lineage. Things quickly grew more complicated, however. After only a few days on the road, the party found themselves at Old Spire Outpost, a place where the guards of Bellaclara were ruthlessly searching for an insurgent group known as the Brotherhood. They were convinced that Cecily and Desmond were Brotherhood spies, and the party became wanted in their escape. To make things more stressful, it was only after that that Poe finally made his return. After explaining the situation to him, Poe explained his journey to the party. He learned more about the Anoa and was on an intense, soul-searching journey, in which he willingly gave up one of his arms for answers. Now he's even more confused than before he left, sporting a new mechanical arm and nothing else to show for it. Poe isn't even sure if he's truly an Anoa after what he learned, but he has vowed to never leave the party again, because sticking with them is the only thing that he's sure of. Soon after, the party met the Brotherhood, and they seemed much more peaceful than the guards were letting on. Their goal was to dismantle the oligarchy of Bella Clara and try to instill a new, less wealth-centric system in the nation. The party traveled with them for a while, but was wary to ally with them, since their own goals still in mind. The party traveled with them for a while, but was wary to ally with them, since they still had their own goals in mind, and joining the group they were confused for wouldn't help clear their names in the slightest. The party and the Brotherhood traveled to one of the group's encampments, where they met the leader of the Brotherhood, Huntress Valeria. Here, the party had a chance to rest and air out their concerns with one another, chiefly the anger that Desmond and Cecily still held for Poe's disappearance. 
but their rest was cut short after Kiothi had a new concern. She recognized the architecture of this encampment, claiming it was her Goliath people's handiwork. But there wasn't a clan of Goliath people here. Perhaps... Perhaps something terrible had happened to the Goliaths. And it didn't take long for the group to receive their answer. In the night, the party received a vision from Daku, the cultists they were imprisoned with all those weeks ago in Summer's Rest. He said he couldn't wait to meet them again, and that they could find him in a cave system near the encampment. The party concluded that he must be hiding here, and the cult would most likely be very close by. And perhaps they were the ones responsible for the death of the Goliaths long ago. The runaways, despite having run away from everything before, decided that it was time to confront this. They prepared to head down to the caverns, and Kiothi. Kiothi decided to come with them to learn what happened to her people. They informed the Brotherhood, but a recent heist in Bromsgrove had the revolutionaries' attention. It was their chance to finally sow the seeds of revolution in the people. The whole encampment left, claiming they couldn't miss a chance to liberate Belaclara. Only Luthius, a member of the Brotherhood who had ventured into the caves before and lost his companions, elected to stay with the party. And so the party, Kiothi, and the new Luthius journeyed into the depths. The cave appeared to be the ruins of a Goliath society. And it's the most danger the party has been in yet. They fought several battles, collecting four stones, each of which needed to open an ancient door that would lead them further into the depths. They've been pushed to their limits and Kiothi even broke her vow of peace, causing harm to one of their enemies. While she is concerned what will come for her when this journey is over, she is determined to see it through. Now the party has collected all four stones needed to get past the door. They are preparing to face whatever will await them on the other side. What happened to Kiothi's people here? What are Luthius's real motives? What does Daku want with them? Whatever the reasons are, the runaways are prepared for the worst. From sessions 27 to 37. Picking up. Where we last left off. The party crossed the threshold. They found Daku standing by a waystone. He told them that the party needed a true Goliath to open the door and break the magical seal and they are now one step closer to achieving the Dark One's reign because of the party's journey through the ruins. He also revealed that Luthius was meant as a spy to betray them, but because of Ashima's kindness to him, Luthius was beginning to have his doubts. In ensuring battle, he ultimately sided with the party and they defeated Daku and used the Waystone to escape into the impending shadows that now overtook the ruins. The Waystones led the party to a strange wasteland, a place where an elderly warrior named Nalfian told them that this is what will come if the Dark One succeeds. 
in this future world, they found their own graves, the graves of other adventurers. This would be the heroes from the nation of Iverion and in the continent of Afara, to be precise. And we also found the hanged body of Solvis Emeril. While the details were still shrouded in mystery, the party now knew that they were meant to find these people and stand united against the Dark One. They also knew that there were four key events that had to be stopped in order to prevent the Wasteland from becoming a reality. They had to prevent the heist in the capital city of Bromsgrove. They had to stop a woman named Maya from taking the sacred flame of Nabir Tarmon. And they had to prevent the rise of the Thirteen, the Dark One's most trusted warriors. And they had to send Nalfian back to the past to offer guidance to his younger self. There were two party members who made discoveries about themselves. Desmond also took note about a massive dragon skull in the landscape, perhaps the skull of the defeated Bahamut. Without the rest of the party's knowledge, he harvested some of the samples from the skull, feeling like he just had to in order to know who he was. And Kiothi found out that she wasn't an Anakalathai, but actually the last of the Kalukatho, the lost clans that were wiped out by the Dark One some 1300 years ago. With this new information, though, they traveled through the Waystone yet again, arriving in the western nation of Jormungandry. The party began to venture through the continent in the pursuit of this Temple of Time, and left both old Nalfian to find his past self and Luthius to return to Bellaclara and change his ways. A series of personal discoveries were made by the party that made their journey more complicated. Bianca learned that Rolius, a mentor in blood hunting, was truly the demon lord Issen the whole time, and that her grandparents must have made a deal with him that she would be his heir. She severed her ties with Issen, the best she could do by discarding his blade, and took a new blade from a group of enemies known as the Uljit. Cecily drew the attention of many in Jormungandry for having the old blood. Her control over lightning seemed to be tied to a rare, perhaps godly bloodline. She drew the attention of bandits, cultists, witches, and even a Bahir with a strange power. A mysterious entity known as the Crow Lord seems to have taken an interest as well. And finally, Poe. The boy lost in time, as he was called by the Witch of the Woods. He had a chance to visit his father one last time before his journey with the party came to an end. An older version of Poe came to visit him, much like the older version of Nalfian that the party had met before. The older Poe informed him that he needed to be brought back to the proper timeline in order to help the Anoa fight their greatest threat yet. Poe left tearfully, saying heartfelt goodbyes to everyone. He even confessed his love to Cecily, something that as of writing this, she is still processing. In his absence, two shadowy creatures came to hunt Desmond down for the sample he took from the future skull of Bahamut. The party fought them off, and in their fight, 
they met two soldiers of the Children of the Flame, Morwin and Karasila Dulski. The twins explained that the Thirteen had begun to invade the North, and the party's journey to the Temple of Time would need to continue on sea in order to avoid them. Agreeing that they had similar goals, and no one else to turn to, the Dulskis joined the runaways and helped them set off to sea. And, as a personal note from the author, I was very happy with them coming along. Anyway, luckily enough, the Crow Lord summoned a boat for the team just in time to escape an attack from Wicker Apiary, one of the Dark One's thirteen. The party sailed to an inn, and Desmond began to learn more and more about his identity from an old paladin and former leader of the Children of the Flame, Hrothgar Damadran. He told Desmond that he was the reincarnation of Sunni, an acclaimed warrior and worshipper of Elowin, the mother of mountains. In a dream sequence, Desmond met Elowin, swore an oath to protect his friends, and was reinvigorated on the path of a paladin. He decided to reclaim the name Sunni, although he still doesn't know why his memory was missing all those months ago. At least Sunni has his name and his purpose back. Where we left off, a group of dark knights broke into the inn, and the party is preparing to fight. Moving on from there, we come to session 38. The party, Hrothgar, and the mysterious beautiful sorcerer, Oriana, fought off the Dark One's minions that came to attack the tavern. They learned that Oriana was a treasure-hunting sailor, and an artifact she had recently found was taken from her by these shadow friends. That being said, the party knew that these enemies weren't just here for her. They decided not to tell her the whole story, but agreed to help her by taking her to Fjordaleth so she could find a new crew and start over. They did, however, tell the whole story to Hrothgar. He knew many things about the Dark One and was able to offer them guidance. He also knew that the Temple of Time that the party had sought had been raided by Odin, the Crow Lord. All of its resources now reside in Tyr's Temple in Fjordaleth. They also learned that Odin and Tyr once ruled Fjordaleth together, but Tyr was killed one day, and many believed Odin was the one who did it. He offered to journey with them and help them get access to this temple, but warned that he would try to defeat the Crow Lord if the opportunity ever arose. And so the group sailed. They sailed on for three weeks, and in this time they ran into Captain Darrow again, but Oriana was able to use her mass suggestion to convince them to leave. Perhaps another encounter with him awaits in the future, when priorities are more simple. They also celebrated the Festival of Lights as much as they could on the boat. And after a few apologies and honest conversations, and some tense conversations between the runaways and the new Dulski twins, those tensions began to alleviate. Throughout the weeks, Morwen had reoccurring symbolic dreams of flowers, and confided in her sister that she's worried about what awaits them in Fjordaleth. Finally, the party arrived in Fjordaleth, and were surprisingly greeted like royalty. 
the Crow Lord called Cecily to come forward and announced that she had returned home. She was Cecily of the Old Blood, daughter of Odin. Session 39 After Hrothgar and Oriana split from the party, the rest of the crew are warmly welcomed by Odin and shown around Fjordleth. He invited us to stay in Tyr's Temple, the very location the party needed to access. Inside was the seed of Yggdrasil, the Tree of Life. Odin said that Cecily could be baptized in its due, a ritual that would open more access to her and this old blood magic. From here, the party split. Some went to talk to Hrothgar and negotiate, while Cecily saw Odin alone to discuss her past. She learned that Odin did in fact kill Tyr, but allegedly he did it to protect Cecily and her mother, Estrid. Tyr had found a prophecy, Visee, stating a child would be born during the blood moon, and if they weren't killed, the Dark One would arrive. Odin killed Tyr, and had Cecily and Estrid magically sent far away so they wouldn't be found. Cecily asks if he regrets it since the Dark One does seem to be coming, but Odin says he's not a fan of prophecies and is glad Cecily is here and alive. Meanwhile, Suni, Carasilla, and Morwen were able to convince Hrothgar to seek out more evidence against Odin before rushing to conclusions. This may buy some time, but Hrothgar still wants a meeting with Odin to investigate, and may still choose to fulfill his oath if the time comes. Afterwards, the three had a conversation about Sunni's remains of Bahamut. The twins voiced their discomfort with them, but Sunni insisted that he would do whatever he felt had to be done, and this might be something his oath and his dragonborn nature were just something they didn't and couldn't understand. Where we left off, the party had been reunited to discuss their next steps. Session 40 The party agreed to a simple plan. Talk to Odin about the meeting, let Hrothgar know about it, and finally consult with Emeril about a variety of issues. The old blood, the Bahamut shavings, and what happens in the future. Late at night, Mimir, Odin's informant, announced that Ashima had a visitor. It happened to be Master Ashima, his teacher. And he came with news so grave. He broke his vow of silence to tell it. Master Ashima had looked into other realms and seen only darkness. It seemed that the Dark One's words were true. He had won against the light thousands of times before. The Tongwu Path is a cyclical religion, and perhaps the only way to break the cycle of darkness is to break the cycles that Ilika have been stuck in for thousands of years, including their own religion. He performed a ritual that linked Ashima more closely with his past lives, and now it is up to Ashima, able to consult with his former students and teachers for guidance to decide if the people of his culture should seek out the next student as always, or break the cycle of reincarnation in an attempt to defeat the Dark One. The next morning, the party had their meetings, 
Caracilla used zone of truth when Emeril and Sigurn arrived, and the party began to have faith in him again. They learned many things from him, including... Ah, Keothi, I'll take it from here. For one, they learned from Sigurn... Um, the story of the old blood. And how Osri and Vanri, the founders of Jormungandry, killed the first giant, Ymir, and drank his blood for power. The old blood is as much of a curse as it is a blessing. And the baptizing in the dew of Yggdrasil is a way to tame it. With this second perspective, Cecily decided she'll take part in the ritual as soon as she could. They also learned that the shavings of platinum that Suni took are so powerful they could be used to cut through the seals of darkness, thus releasing the Thirteen. They're in my hands now and I will attempt to destroy them. They also discovered that I, Emeril, I actually have many simulacrums, and this version of myself doesn't know my original creator. My corpse in the future implies that the original me didn't take action to fight against the Dark One when the time came something that shocked and disgusted me. As their meeting ended, I promised to keep a closer watch on the party now. They're too tied to this to turn back. Oh, uh, thank you, Imaril. That was very kind of you to hop in. Um, anyway. Finally, they met Hrothgar and Odin at the top of Tyr's temple, just moments before Cecily's relatives were supposed to arrive. Tensions remained high, and Hrothgar seemed to be convinced there was still more to the story of Tyr's death. He pressed Odin, and before the party could help it, the two men prepared to fight. Session 41 The party tried desperately to end the conflict between Odin and Hrothgar to no avail. As the fight raged on, infighting began between Suni and Morwen, and Cecily's new magic grew more and more and more out of control. After collapsing the roof of Tyr's temple, the whole group fought in freefall until Odin finally ended things. He cast powerful magic to stop time and use his lightning magic to defeat Hrothgar, severing his sword arm from his body. Hrothgar was healed and allowed to live but immediately removed from the city. Immediately after, Cecily collapsed, and Odin told the party that she had to be baptized now or she could completely succumb to her powers and die. The party agreed to let Odin do so, and Cecily awoke with eyes the color of the sun. The party fought fiercely with one another back in the room. Some believed there was nothing that could have been done, that getting involved in this feud between these two men was a mistake from the beginning. Others, particularly Suni, thought that the fight could have gone differently, and maybe Hrothgar could have left here without being maimed. Regardless, the arguing stopped when I finally demanded the party stay together and never give in to infighting. If this is what becomes of us, I said, then the Dark One is already winning. The party cleaned up in the temple's hot springs as everyone calmed down. Some were still weary of Odin, and then also the truth of his words. 
but it seemed like it was time for them to move on with their main objective. Or perhaps they could move on after they attended the celebration party with Cecily's extended family. Perhaps they could learn more, and Odin would lead them where they would needed to go to finally travel back in time. If nothing else, it would certainly be an entertaining evening. Session number 42. The group attends the night festivals, and their suspicions of Odin grew and grew. Carisilla, Ashima, and Cecily found out that some guests had negative views of Odin, but feared punishment if they expressed them. Meanwhile, Bianca met with Hel, a tiefling woman who offered to help fight Issen if she joined the Valkyries, a group of women warriors that fight for the fallen. At the end of their talk, Hel whispered to Bianca, Be wary of the Allfather. The most damning event happened to Suni. Odin called him into his office for a private talk about the actions during the fight with Hrothgar. Suni stood his ground trying to protect Tro, at which point Odin shoved him against a wall. He told Suni that, just like him, he would fight whoever he needed to in order to protect his own. He said that the only reason that he wouldn't kill Suni is because he needed Cecily for something. But before Suni could press any further, Odin magically modified his memories, and Suni came back to the party as if they had had a pleasant conversation. Later in the evening, Rose Fisher of Summer's Rest arrived. She presented a gift to Odin, and the party knew it was the stone that Oriana had found the same one that the Dark One had wanted so badly. One of its magical runes was a symbol for time, worrying the party even deeper about Odin's intentions. Throughout the night, the party observed the dysfunction of the Odinson family. Thor told a story about brutally murdering a giant begging for life, and he couldn't help but laugh hysterically while doing so. Loki also tried to kill Balder with a special bomb, but to no avail. The rest of the guests had watched like this was normal. Some of the group talked to Rose to see what she knew, while the others went to find Mimir. They convinced him to go to Odin's office, and Cecily began to ask him about the prophecy and what he knew, and it slowly became clear that Mimir knew something, but... Perhaps his memory had been changed the same way Odin had changed Sunni's, and now Mimir was too scared to talk about it. But in that moment Odin arrived, carrying Mimir away and ordering the others back to their rooms. Session 43 The party discussed their suspicion of Odin, but decided that their only real option was to continue to play his game until they made their way into Tyr's room to the Temple of Time. They also speculated that Cecily was quite possibly the child of Tyr, not Odin. In the morning, Bianca helped Cecily braid her hair. It seemed like time for a change, and they went to meet with Hel. After learning she could reclaim her soul, she decided to become a Valkyrie. She swore an oath and was granted a new magic item, and learned that Sigurn and Freya were the other two of the twelve Valkyries. Later, Bianca used this item to speak with the souls of the lost in Tyr's temple. 
she learned a bit about the circumstances of Cecily's birth before she had to hide. Odin and Thor were headed down the hall. She overheard them talk and learned that Odin had some sort of master plan to save not only Fjordaleth but the world. She also heard him talk to Estrid's portrait, implying that she chose Tyr over him as a partner. Meanwhile, Sunnis and the Dulskis aired out their differences and explained their rationale. Suni felt a strong bond to Hrothgar, while Morwen and Carisilla felt a strong bond to their dead allies. They didn't want anything to get in the way of their mission. The three made up and promised not to stir conflict with one another again. And believe me, I am very gracious of that. Kyothi, myself, I had received a letter from the Hearthstone urging me to come back home. They said there was something important to tell me, so, I figured, if this info could help the group that could help against the fight with the Dark One, it would be worth it. And everyone, graciously so, agreed that I should go. I promised to return as soon as I could. Finally, the group had Magni and Modi take them to a dwarven mine, which actually seemed more like a tomb. A piece of parchment was sitting on an old throne, listed many ancient names. Inlil Bani, Radiant Lord of the Dawi, Laufei, Leader of the Giants, Ariormlo, and the Order of the Amaranthine Exiles. But before they knew it, Draugr rose up and prepared to attack. Session 44. The party fights two battles. The Draugr were easier than expected, and Cecily relishes her new magical capabilities. But an onkeg that burst from a nearby well proved to be a much deadlier foe, and in lieu of Kyothi's healing capabilities, the party elected to take a rest. During that time, the twins proposed reconvening with the Children of the Flame once their mission was done, perhaps even welcoming their new allies into the group. The others seemed to agree that it would be a good next step, and Suni reiterated his apologies to the twins, promising to be a better paladin for all of them. Morwen examined an axe that was stuck inside of the defeated Onkeg, discovering it was a magical weapon. She attuned to it, and now Morwen Dulski wields the Leviathan axe. The party continued on, finding a notebook left by a gleeman renowned entertainers, storytellers, and tricksters. This journal detailed some of what was happening in the mine. Before the party could process much of it, they heard sounds of another foe in the distance. Session 45. After another treacherous fight, the party began to gather more items. They found the gleeman cloak of Aaron Marilyn, the journal writer, the mysterious scales of Ariomlo, and a rod of tranquility in the tomb of Inlil Bani. Later, they discovered more writing, explaining that the undead were created by Inlil before everyone's death in order to defend those items from getting into the wrong hands. The final item was Tyr's circlet, which was guarded by a massive horde of undead. Should the items of the five of the Amaranthine Order be wielded by those the items deem worthy, and the light of the Valkyries shine upon them, the curse could be broken. Since Bianca now had the Valkyrie Lantern, all they needed was Cecily to grab the circlet, 
and the curse would be broken. Before they proceeded, Bianca found a journal from a Hearthcrest scholar about 350 years old. The writer detailed many myths of Dark Ones and destroyers of light throughout different cultures in Ilica. She was studying and trying to seek out, perhaps defeat, one of many such dark creatures. Jaharasil. Simply reading the name damaged Bianca. Morwen used a radiant ball of energy to blow away the undead hordes as Cecily grabbed the circlet. The party fought all off as Bianca shined her light and eventually the entire horde was cast away into the afterlife. But then, the same undead that had been destroyed by that divine energy began to rematerialize in front of the party as two giants appeared from the ashes. <laughs>